This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where certain things are fixed, the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Pints in Perspective. It is weird today, though. I am coming to you uh, from Houston Baptist University, my alma mater. And uh, I don't know that uh, they'd be super cool if we were drinking beer. So <laughs> no beer today. It's okay if you do it, just yeah. not on campus. <laughs> yeah, so. it's okay if you do it, just not here. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I guess you can tell I'm with Dr. Ben Blackwell again. I'm excited um, because you've all been asking about what my preferred soteriological uh, position is. And it's one that hardly anybody's heard of and... And so a lot of you don't know what it is. And I wanted to do a couple episodes with um, Ben because he was the one that first introduced me to deification and what it is and why it works and why it's the best soteriological position to be in. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we're going to do a um, just a brief introduction on what is deification. And so, Ben, but why don't you just tell us how you got interested in it? Where did you get introduced to it? Yeah, well, thanks for having me uh, back on here. So it's uh, a, a pleasure to come and hang out. So yeah, it's always lo- a blessing. Everybody loved everybody loved you on the first ones. We got so many comments on the kingdom of God, like just how how formative and and how good it was for people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So to the question of how I got there, uh, it, it really goes back to this, uh, I guess, providence in the sense that I. Went to seminary, went to Dallas Theological Seminary, and and that's where Dan Wallace teaches. And for those that are, you know are not in the know, uh, he's like the Greek grammar guru. And so, if you want to be a Greek language person, so I went to DTS and uh, to study languages, uh, know the Bible and Greek and Hebrew. And I'd had a bit of that as an undergraduate. And so when I got to DTS, I was like, oh gosh, they're there's actually not that much more to learn. I mean, there's more about the Bible to learn, but like Greek itself was no longer this unmastered right. sphere for me. And I happened to have a couple of theology classes the first semester I was there, church history and some other theology. And it's like, man, there's this whole world of theology. In fact, there are all these people out there that I've never even heard of. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. I remember that first semester, one of the professors has started talking about Karl Barth who is, you know, a theologian in the mid 20th century. And he was like, Karl Barth's not our enemy. And I was like, okay, I don't even know who Karl Barth is. Yeah. So I don't know why he would be my enemy, yeah. you know, kind of thing. Cause I'd just never done any of that side of things. So I just got fascinated by the world of the history of Christian theology. So mm-hmm. who, who are these people that have been engaging the Bible for the past 2000 years and how do they, appropriate the Bible for their setting and make sense of it in their context. And uh, within that, I took an early church class, a patristic uh, theology class with a guy named Jeff Bingham, who's an Irenaeus scholar. And we were just, uh, the we worked through basically the first, you know, I don't know, thousand years of history of how people develop theology and, and, and practice their, their spirituality and I got assigned a a group project on you know, Byzantine uh, theology. Of course, I didn't even know the Byzantine world was, but basically when the Roman Empire fell, uh, 
we know of Rome, you know, the medieval world, the Latin side of the world kind of devolved into, you know, different fiefdoms and all that kind of stuff. But the Greek, the Roman empire kept going actually for another thousand years, just out of Istanbul or Constantinople as its capital. And so the Byzantine empire is that Greek right. Roman, um, civilization. And so theology flourished for over that next thousand years. And so, uh, within that, then the idea of theosis or deification is, you know, if, if Martin Luther and, or, you know, as the reformation tradition has argued that justification is the doctrine by which uh, the church, basically the Protestant church, but the church stands or falls. So it's the key doctrine that undergirds Protestant theology Theosis serves as that, or deification serves as that kind of doctrine for the Eastern Orthodox or the Byzantine Church. Yeah, and so I uh, did that uh, group project for that class at the is about that same time when I had to come up with a master's thesis topic, and I didn't know what in the world I wanted to study, and I was like, well, I don't know anything about this. It seems interesting, and so I focused on one. Uh, theologian, his name's Maximus Confessor, and his view of deification, and then it ended up being my doctoral uh, subject as well. So looked at Paul and deification. Nice. So one of the things that I found so interesting learning about this and and getting to know you was this idea that deification is not something that someone just dreamed up somewhere, but actually, as you studied with Paul and the reception history of Paul, it's actually rooted in the Bible. Yeah, so the whole thing here is that the early church that uses this language, so deification or theosis comes from the term uh, God, right? Deus is God or uh, theos is God in Greek, and theosis is to be made a God. And so that sounds a bit crazy, you know, but there are some biblical passages that talk about humans as gods. And we'll, we'll walk through those specifically. I know later, uh, but Psalm 82, six helps generate this, but there, Jesus quotes that passage as well that said, I said, you're gods. And so it, it, it starts off this, uh, imagination of what does that mean? but it gets linked into other passages as well. And so it's really an attempt to articulate the, the scope of the Bible or the scope of salvation uh, right. in that sense. And so that humanity is ultimately meant to be united with God or uh, connected to God. And so that our best human flourishing, the best part of ourselves is sharing, becoming like God. Yeah, And so that's the, uh, becoming gods. There's a, a Mormon version of this that we can talk about as well. That yeah, would be distinct. Uh, they'll use that same language as well, uh, and so there are some similarities there, but there are some fundamentally differences as well. But ultimately, this idea is that we are to be are united with God and become like Him, and so that's what the focus of the language is about. Yeah, so I think that's the key, um, and I want to talk about a lot of people use this idea of deification ontologically or metaphorically or somewhere in between. Um, And so I do think those are distinctions that need to be made. But the thing that I always like to think about with deification or theosis is that it can be summed up in divine likeness. Mm -hmm. It is the, it is the telos is the end 
the goal, the perfect um, for humanity to become like God. We are told in the beginning of the story that we are made in the image of God. And so it is our destiny to become like God. Now, is that metaphorical? Does something ontological happen with us through the process of deification? Or um, is it ethical? Is it just like a metaphor to explain what Martin Luther or John Calvin might call sanctification? Yeah, so I think it includes sanctification. What I'd say is I think it does help in that sense to think through kind of what is the difference between Orthodox Christianity and Mormonism here. Yeah. Is that for Mormonism, uh, we have the exact same nature as God the Father He he and Jesus. And so we are just less developed in our spiritual, spiritual life and reality. And so just in the same way that Heavenly Father's how they name uh, God has created this world and shaped it. And we are his spiritual children as we mature and grow in uh, our spirituality. Then we take on the characteristics that he does. So we become gods in the same way that uh, God is God because we share the same nature. Whereas in historic orthodoxy, uh, we would assert that God has a distinct nature from us. And so that particularly an infinite nature and that we as humans, while similar to God in some ways are always uh, distinct from him. And so in that sense, when we talk about becoming gods in the history, the patristic church, the early church that developed this language, they always meant it as a metaphor in the sense that we become like God because we don't actually become gods. We don't become a member of the Trinity. We're not absorbed into God. Uh, these kind of things. God is infinite and we're finite. And so what happens is, is we participate in divine attributes. And so we, uh, we become immortal because God shares his immortal life with us, or we become holy because the Holy God shares his holiness with us. And so participation is a big term here then. Yep. Uh, and Mormonism, you don't have to talk about participation in that sense, because we actually inhabit and, and those things are in us in that same way. But um, whereas in Orthodox Christianity, the whole idea is God is always the source of this and right. we are always receivers of it. But the whole idea is that we actually do get to receive it. I mean, right. that's, and so it um, fits with sanctification. I mean, I think sanctification, holiness is a key a component of that, but it's not limited to sanctification. Right. And I think that's the thing that was so formative for me in it is when you really start to read Paul, where we get that language of justification, sanctification, and glorification, specifically there in, what is it, Romans 8? Um, right there, they seem to be like mile markers. Like you move from one to the next one to the next one. But then you have these other places in Paul where he doesn't seem to think they're mile markers, that salvation is a constant process and each of these are fluid. Um, And that's why I think he can say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Um, And so I think the thing that I really came to love about deification is this participationist piece because 
it doesn't force you into a conversation of the mile markers. You're always being justified. You're always being sanctified and you're always being glorified as you progress through participating in divine likeness. Yeah, I think that's helpful. I mean, that, working with that model of justification, sanctification, glorification uh, is helpful. It has some, what I'd say, some analytic clarity, you right. know, but at the same time, as you pursue kind of academic theology, you'll find uh, scholarship that spells out or makes clear. Actually, you don't see those three terms used in that sequence anywhere in the Bible. Except Romans. <laughs> well, no, you don't have sanctification there. You have justification to glorification, Romans 8. But it's, oh. uh, and you have them come and go, but they're, that is a construct that we've made to help people understand what, what they see in the text. Yeah. But if justification is the most important function or kind of the basis of, of which those other two happen, it, it's kind of funny that Paul never calls Christians the just ones. He always calls them saints. Oh, yeah. And so in that sense, holiness or their sanctification is more central to their identity than their justification Ooh, is. Yeah. And, and again, all, all this to say is it, it's a construct. It, right. it, it helps, it articulates and spells things out. But one of the things that I think actually happens with by dividing it up that way is that you you get some goofy steps or get goofy approaches to theology and uh, salvation when people treat one step as distinct from another. Right. You know, and this is the... Um, you know, the version that I was raised with, you know, that if you get justified, if you get saved, that's your, you know, that's your fire your insurance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so you don't go to hell. And, you know, it's a nice thing if you obey Jesus or you follow him. But sanctification is kind of um, important and, uh, you know, expected, but at the same time, it's not necessary. Right. And that's just not at all the way that Paul talks about it. And yeah. I, what I find about theosis and is what you've, I think, mentioned here was that it, it, it holds these three together as a coherent whole rather than three distinct un, uh, unrelated parts. Now, I have to say that in the best of like the Reformed tradition or Wesleyan theology, uh, the, be the best of those theologies holds these together better than the average Christian right. uh, is understands. Uh, but at the same time, there is something just inherent in that three-step designation that uh, just creates problems that I don't think the text itself that we don't see in the biblical text yeah. in that way. And that theosis itself not only brings together the progression in the Christian life, but as you said, it, it goes back to the progression of the whole biblical narrative it, it, it starts with genesis 1 and makes sense of all the way to revelation 22 of yep. this work from creation to new creation and so it has both it links uh you know both of those narratives are my personal salvation narrative but also god's work in the world and so i think it and you lose that connection i think or it's not nearly as obvious in the you know, if you just work in the justification, sanctification, glorification step. Yeah, I do think I do think that's true. It it can, without a careful reading, feel disconnected from the biblical narrative as a whole at times. Um, 
you know, another thing that was really helpful for me was when you and I and our friend Adam Cheney took a independent study on deification and participation together. And it was actually just Adam's class that you were teaching that I jumped in on. So okay, yeah, and Dallas um, Lewis, I remember, was with us as well. Right? Oh, was she? I don't remember. Her. Oh, it's because I met in your office with you because I had a class during the time. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so yeah, so we had this little independent study, and I wasn't actually in the class. I was just reading along and participating in the conversation. But I learned about the great exchange that God became man so that man might become God. Can you talk a little bit about that and the, the kind of development of that and what, what the patristic authors are really trying to say when they communicate that? Yeah, at the heart of Christian spirituality is our connection with God. And so the bridge, the connection there is not some abstract idea, but it's Jesus Christ himself, yep. right? He is the union of heaven and earth. He is where humanity and divinity come together as one. And this idea that the, you know, the fancy term for that is the hypostatic union. Right. In, in his hypostasis, in his person, you have the union of divine and uh, human there. And, and in that sense that the purpose for him coming to earth from heaven to earth was so that uh, God could draw us up into those heaven, heavenly realities and we're back to the two natures thing. So it, it sounds very philosophical here, right? You come back to the idea of nature, hypostasis, I mean, right. big terms and all that kind of stuff. But basically the idea is that even though these are distinct natures, the, the fundamental premise is that they go together. And so they weren't, the humanity was not designed to be an independent or separate from God. And so in Jesus Christ, we see not an aberration of humanity, but actually a fulfillment of what right. humanity was supposed to be. And so that as we embody the reality, as we're conformed to the image of Christ, as we and therefore embody the image of God, we uh, live out what God intended for us in the first place. Yeah. And, so for me, as I began to think about this, and when I was reading all of this, I'd grown up in a tradition where I largely, my exposure had largely been that to live the Christian life is to not sin. Don't cuss, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't run with girls who do, right? That was like, that was the thing. It's like, you don't do the bad stuff. But I don't remember hearing too many sermons about doing the good things the things that were commissioned to do. Uh, I just remember hearing a lot about if you want to maintain your place of status and, and being, being in right standing with God, um, don't sin anymore. And I really felt like deification and participation took that out of the conversation. Because yes, while we would cognitively say God is a God without sin, that's not what we see from him, or that's not our experience in being in relationship with him. It's his goodness. It's his holiness. It's the things that he does out of his love mm -hmm. in, in being provider and carer um, and savior and all of those things. And so I felt like it helped me. It, it felt like it was a, a bridge between my abstract kind of head theological position combined with 
my practical theology, so my orthodoxy and my orthopraxy, they now seemed aligned. I had a soteriology that depended upon a Christian ethic, that it was the goal of Christians to be a medium of God's love that we've experienced mm-hmm. to others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's helpful. And that, and I, I do think in, in the best of Protestant theology, which I don't, I don't think this has to be in opposition to Protestant theology right. by any means. I'm still very much Protestant. Uh, but in, in the best of Protestant theology, these things are held together, but they in a very nuanced way that is often missed um, on the average Christian. Right. And, you know, one of the big things that I think is very important about Protestant theology is the assurance of salvation. I mean, this is the idea that at conversion, we don't have to bring something to that equation to make it settle or to make it right, whole. You know, I think that's quite important to what the biblical text is talking about. But even in the idea of theosis, it's not like we become gods or we don't raise ourselves from the dead on our own. It's God, we're sharing in God's life. So the whole idea that God is doing this, but the purpose, you know, one simple way to describe theosis is to participate in God's life. Um, and in that sense, like that's the whole idea of salvation is to live. So it's, as you articulated, it's not just don't do the bad things. It's actually do and experience the fullness that comes from community with one another, community with God, uh, that comes out of that living faith. And, and so there are some positive things you do, you know, commands you follow as well, but it, it's a holistic uh, wellness, uh, well-being, you know, is the whole idea of human flourishing is kind of the fancy term for it. But, and I think that's why it fits for me, like with the kingdom of God, sometimes yeah. in that sense, we uh, limit the kingdom to something we're going to experience in heaven someday. But, you know, when I see Jesus in Luke four, he's like, no, preach the good news of the kingdom here and now so that the blind see and the uh, prisoners are freed. And, and so that, that life here is available here and now. And so the, again, it's part of that overarching story of what God's doing in the world. It is, it is to bring the meta narrative into focus on the person of Jesus It says the reality of the kingdom of God can be realized here and now because God became man so that man might become God. Yeah, yeah. And that's the whole, you know, we come back to the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father Mm -hmm. in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think that's the whole thing there. Jesus is where heaven comes down to earth. And as we live out Jesus' life through the Spirit, we experience heaven on earth, right? That's God, uh, and that's at, at the heart of what theosis is about.